The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes creating a professional website for your business, personal brand or portfolio so easy it's newsworthy. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. I'm John Plunkett. This week, it's a TV special. Matt Berry talks to me about his career and the cult success of his Channel 4 show, Toast of London. Plus, comedian, actor and writer Lenny Henry gave BAFTA's annual TV lecture this week. We'll give you the highlights of the wide-ranging lecture on the state of the TV industry and, most importantly, its diversity on screen. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. My guest this week is actor, writer and voiceover artist extraordinaire Mr Matt Berry, who has worked with some of the finest comics of the decade on shows such as The IT Crowd, The Mighty Boosh, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place and, with Arthur Matthews, his own sitcom Toast of London. The show, where Berry plays struggling actor Stephen Toast, well, I didn't find huge audiences on Channel 4, but a late-night Sunday night slot probably didn't help. However, it found a loyal audience on its catch-up service 4OD, and thanks to the joy of Twitter, word quickly spread. And the good news for fans was that a second series has now been commissioned. When Matt came to The Guardian recently, I began by asking him how much of the character is based on his own acting experiences. Well, Toast just came from a lot of sort of my voiceover history, I guess, you know, and audio work, and the kind of actor that I would meet on those jobs. It was the same deal each time. They'd always be really angry. Because they'd be at a certain age and things might not have gone the way, you know, that they thought that they were going to go. You only had to mention, like, another actor's name, the same kind of age, and they would just go to DEFCON 1. I could see this, you know, kind of happening with each one. So it became like a game where i go, you know, so what about Ian McShane? And then suddenly, bang, you know, you had this, you know, this tirade about Ian McShane, you know, or, you know, whomever. And it feels like you mentioned your voiceover work there, and a lot of what Toast does is, is yeah. incredibly painful voiceover work. Yeah. Being sort of terrorised by Clem Fandango. Yeah. How much of it, of it is it revenge on, on well, the people revenge, you know, previously in your career? Everything that you see, you know, has basically, you know, kind of happened in some way or another. Hi, Stephen. Yes. This is Clem Fandango. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you, Clem Fandango. Honestly, this is going so great, but I just think there was a little loss of energy in that last take. Maybe try one more. Yes! 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 Fuck. Stephen? What? How would you feel about doing a no? Brilliant to get a second series. I, I, I feared it would be one of those shows that gets enormous critical acclaim. Everyone loves it. Massive, devoted cult following, but then doesn't get a second series. But this time, uh, you know, happy ending. Well, I thought the same thing. You know, I was kind of convinced of that because that's been, you know, my sort of trend with things. Well, it, it had a tough... Well, it was it with t- the first thing I ever did, obviously, you know, in, was Dark Place and... Which is t- t- One series. Ago. Yeah, exactly ten years ago. Yeah, and that was one series. And then I did a thing called... Um, Snuffbox. BBC Three? Yeah, I wasn't even convinced that would completely run. I thought they'd probably kind of pull that halfway through. So the fact that any of those episodes went out, you know, was a massive bonus to me. And that obviously went for one <laughs> for one <laughs> series. So I kind of thought, you know, Toast would be the same. But in your defence, they had another thing in common, which was tough scheduling. I mean, Toast was, what, uh, late night on a Sunday? Which kind of, yeah. you kind of felt wasn't giving it the best chance. Well, because they probably didn't know what to do. You know, it's from their point of view, you know, you know, not to give them an out or anything, but, you know, it would have been difficult to 
know what its audience would be. I mean, to say it's niche, you know, is a, you know, a sort of cliche, but I suppose it is to a lot of people. So I guess they were just kind of wary. So they stuck it out then, and they stuck it out after a male panel show, thinking, you know, that they'd keep that audience from that panel show. But apparently that panel show didn't get any audience, so <laughs> I was fucked from the beginning. <laughs> this latest surgeon she went to, a scrupulous character, goes by the name of Beezus Fafoon. Beezus Fafoon? Beezus Fafoon. I haven't heard that name in a while. Really? Beezus Fafoon was a pseudonym sometimes used by a rival of mine. A total prat by the name of Ray Purchase. Ah, yes. Third-rate actor of vulgar farces. That's the one. Now, I've been fucking his wife on an ongoing basis. He's never got used to the idea. When did you first kind of get into the... When did you first realise you were funny? I don't think I am. And anyone who does is a wanker. I mean, like, I got into this, you know, through the back door. It was just... I was doing some songs before some really early Boosh gigs. And Matt and Richard were coming along to the shows and then they were doing stuff, you know, sort of, you know, to like warm up. This is Matt, Matt Holness and Richard O. Yeah, yeah, and then, you know, we became, you know, sort of mates as a result of that. And then Matt said, you know, doing this thing, you know, this kind of horror character, do you want to play this Spanish doctor? I was in the London dungeon at the time. So, you know, it was an easy sort of decision to make. So that was your, that was your first proper acting gig? Yeah. And what were you in the London Dungeon? Probably a variety of roles. Yeah, you are, yeah. The Judge was the most fun. The Judge and Jack the Ripper. What did you get to do as these characters? Well, so when you're the judge, you're up in a box and all all the sort of tourists come through, then you pick out three and then you do them for witchcraft or whatever. And there's this same joke that they do at the end where they go, you, sir, you come here. Where are you from? And they go, Germany. Guilty, <laughs> and then just get rid of them. It's a terrible old joke that used to make them all howl with laughter <laughs> every day, every five minutes. <laughs> I loved it though; it was great. You literally went from the London Dungeon to yeah. du- from one yeah. dark place I to another. I stopped the London Dungeon on the Wednesday, and we started to rehearse for Garth Marenghi. I think on the sort of Friday morning. That's a long time ago, but it was one of the great injustices that Dark Place didn't get a second series. It kind of came back as a sort of spoofy chat show, didn't it? But it was never quite the same. Yeah. I mean, who knows? I think it cost a lot of money to make Dark Place. I mean, it was shot on film. I could, you know, I can remember when Richard was going in to, you know, sort of have a look at the fake film, you know, sort of versus, you know, the real film. And there was just absolutely nothing in it. You know, that was where all the budget went. He's right, Dan. What went on in there was not by the book. Reed did specifically tell you to be orthodox. Et tu, sunshine. I thought we were buddies. Gentlemen, you're squabbling over this like dogs with meat. I agree with that. Listen, this ain't another exploding patient you can sweep under your rug. Now, Remick was the gateway to another dimension. When he exploded, that gateway opened. We must shut it again as soon as possible. What? Am I holding a crock of shit? Tell me something. Is this hospital called saying crock of shit? All right, all right, calm down, calm down. So, yeah, Matt Toast, I mean, co-wrote it, of course, with Arthur Matthews from Father Ted. Yeah. How, how do you go about creating a, a writing partnership? Yeah, I just, you know, I've always loved Arthur's work, you know, Arthur's mind, you know, the, his ideas and things. So, you know, he was definitely, you know, number one when I needed. And how do you write together? Are you in the same room? Are you like, No, he's uh, in Dublin and I'm, and I'm in London. <laughs> right. So it's just sort of correspondence and lots of phone calls. We have an idea, you know, or a sort of, you know, sort of situation that we both like, you know, or he's thought of something. Say, for instance, in the next series, Arthur's, Arthur came up with this idea of him being buried alive. So it was just finding a way of getting him buried alive within a story. Do you know what I mean? So it's all these ideas and then just trying to twist some story around it. The second series, what can we expect? Is it going a totally different... Well, he gets buried alive and he has to do a voiceover while he's, while he's buried alive. So... 
Imagine that. <laughs> All right, Matt. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. From one comic actor to another now, see what I've done there? And Lenny Henry, who delivered the annual BAFTA television lecture on Monday. The talk, in front of an audience of British television creatives and executives, addressed issues of diversity in the industry. A recent census by Creative Skillset found a drop in the number of black, Asian and minority ethnic people working in the creative media industries. Here's Lenny Henry, recorded this week at BAFTA's HQ in Piccadilly. Thank you. Thank you. My lords, (laughs) ladies, gathered members of the media and my fellow members of BAFTA. My name is Lenny Henry. I'm an actor, writer, comedian and producer. In 2008, I was asked to make a speech at the Royal Television Society. My talk covered the history of ethnic minorities in British television, the story of my own personal journey in the business, and I put forward some suggestions as to how we might make the representation of ethnic minorities a little fairer. At the talk's conclusion, I said, I hope that things will now change and that I don't have to come back and repeat myself in another five or six years' time. Yeah. It's good to be back, people. I'd just like to give you the background on how this second speech came about. Last year, I watched the BAFTA Awards on TV, and the next evening I went along to the Sony Radio Awards. There I was going up the red carpet, looking forward to a glass of Prosecco and a miniature sausage roll, when this journalist stuck a microphone in my face and asked if I thought the BAFTAs were a bit vanilla. And um, I went into this riff, like I was in my pyjamas at home, in a gallows humour style about how they had Chewy to ledger for and Sanjeev Bhaskar and David Hare were presenting awards, but there were no blacks or Asians collecting prizes because it seemed to me there hadn't been any significant black or Asian projects made that year. We hadn't been given the opportunity to write or make or be in anything, so we weren't winning anything. I ran my mouth off, basically. <laughs> Said something like, it's going to be a brand new show, it'll be all white on the night. <laughs> uh, and this was before I'd had the Prosecco. Next day, it was in all the papers. I was getting phone calls. I had to ring BAFTA and say, BAFTA, I love you guys. No, I think you do a great job. No, please don't stop sending the free movies. (laughs) I've got a deal with the news agent on the corner. If we could figure out how to stop that caption property of BAFTA appearing every 10 minutes, we'd be billionaires. That, ladies and gentlemen, was my call to action. BAFTA, it's all your fault. You are to blame. So once again, I'm here today to make a speech about diversity in the British film and TV industry. I also want to make some observations about my own journey in the business so far and weigh in with some ideas on how we could and should change things for the future. Uh, For those of you who don't know, and by the way, how many people here weren't alive in 1975? (laughs) Dear God. Back then, I got my TV break via a show called New Faces. Had an audience of about 16 million people every week. It launched people like Victoria Wood. It was kind of like Britain's Got Talent for comedians and variety performers, but without Simon Cowell. (laughs) So before I begin, let's look back at what happened since my speech in 2008. Well, some broadcasters took action. They launched or relaunched various initiatives and training programs. They created new training schemes for the youth from underprivileged backgrounds to enter the industry. They've run senior mentoring schemes to help people from diverse backgrounds break through the glass ceiling. They've even invested in extra monitoring of the problem. Now, I love trainee schemes. 
I love mentoring. Haven't you watched every Hollywood buddy police movie? The young whippersnapper cop is teamed up with the older, wiser, white-haired mentor who's seen it all, done it all, and shoots three gangsters every time he goes for coffee and a bagel. We love mentors. And I've had many over the years. Now, there's been um, Robin Nash, Jim Moyer, Paul Jackson, Jeff Posner, Peter Bennett-Jones, Robert Luff. These people have all helped to shape my career at various stages of my life, and I'm deeply grateful to them from my heart. I really am. Although, where those guys were when I was in the Black Art Ministries for five years, I'll never know. I also love increased monitoring, as that's how I can tell you the stats and figures that reveal that since my last speech in 2008, despite all those mentoring and training programs, despite these easy to roll out solutions, the fact is the situation has deteriorated badly. Between 2006 and 2012, the number of BAMEs working in the UK TV industry has declined by 30.9%. Creative Skillset conducted a census that shows quite clearly that black, Asian and minority ethnic representation in the creative industries in 2012 was just 5.4%, its lowest point since they started taking the census. That's an appalling percentage, more so because the majority of our industry is still based in and around London, right here, where there's a BAME population of 40%. Want some more evidence? Here's another rocket-propelled statistical grenade for you. In the last three years, the total of number of BAME people in the industry has fallen by 2,000, while the industry as a whole has grown by over 4,000. Or to put it another way, for every black and Asian person who lost their job, more than two white people were employed. And since 2008, I've noticed another worrying trend. Our most talented BAME actors are increasingly frustrated and they have to go to America to succeed. You know who I'm talking about, David Oyelowo in The Help and The Butler, Idris Elba in Long Walk to Freedom, Prometheus and The Wire, Tandy Newton in Crash, Mission Impossible, Chiwetel Ejiofor in 12 Years a Slave, he was good in American Gangster too, David Harewood in Homeland, Lenny James in The Walking Dead and uh, Jericho, Marianne Jean-Baptiste, ladies and gentlemen, our first black British female Oscar nominee for Secrets and Lies had to go stateside to find work in Without a Trace. Archie Punjabi, of course, and The Good Wife. All achieved a measure of success here, but were frustrated at the lack of opportunity in the UK. This kind of exodus has been happening for a while. And I'm gonna read an excerpt from a letter now. It refers to the lack of opportunity and prejudice towards minority actors in Britain and the impetus to go where one is wanted as opposed to the alternative. So uh, forgive me as I read this. It says, uh, I at present enjoy a popularity equal to that of Mr. Edmund Keane in his heyday in England. I have more offers of engagement than I can possibly attend to or fulfill and on the terms of my own dictation. Therefore, I need not tell you that I have not the slightest idea of returning to England for at least two years, if then should God spare my life. I've already had five offers from Parisian theatres. Here, an actor is estimated according to his ability and they, the artists, are gentlemen generally and received and treated as such by the public. This letter was written on March 11th by the black classical actor Ira Aldridge in 1853. Imagine if he'd had to cope with whoever cast Midsummer Murders. <laughs> he'd have topped himself. Black British Oscar winning filmmaker Steve McQueen. Damn, that's sounding good. I'm going to say that again. Black British Oscar. And BAFTA winning filmmaker Steve McQueen, director of 12 Years a Slave, has had huge success in the UK and the States with that film and shame and hunger. 
He's been fortunate to have had the backing of Film 4, and I'm delighted he's chosen to return to the UK to direct a TV series set in West London, which is good news for us, both as a viewing public and as a workforce who want to be involved with something that just might compete with other high-end drama come BAFTA time. My point is, we are often told that BAME don't have the marquee value or star power to drive a feature or long-running series. That's what we're told. These performers have demonstrated that this is no longer the case. I don't want to be too much of a downer. There's been some change. Idris Elba came back, didn't he? To make Luther. Yeah, boy. A crime series set in a London-like metropolis. Idris plays the title role, an intellectual troubled maverick cop who has no black friends or family. <laughs> Not at all. None. Have you seen this? He never has any black mates. You never see him talking to his uncle Festus or whatever his name is. He's never down Jerk City having a curry goat and rice with his brethrens. You never see Luther with black people. What's going on? And he never changes his clothes. What's that all about? <laughs> it's a great show. Um, Corrie's BAME presence has increased in the last few years too. But let's face it, they had to do something, didn't they? For far too long, Coronation Street was the only street in the north of England with a corner shop owned by a white family. <laughs> Indian families be watching at home going, these people have taken all our jobs. <laughs> you can't go in a post office these days without seeing a white face behind the counter. Something has to change. Even Emmerdale had Will Johnson right on Will playing Dominic Andrews. He was on Emmerdale Farm. Check it out, man. The black mechanic and single father, Dominic Andrews, who's had to cope with school bullying, one-night stands, drug deals, teenage pregnancy, abortion, and gunshot wounds. And that was just in his first episode, for Christ's sake. <laughs> um, but we shouldn't just look at on-screen portrayal. We should check out what's happening behind the camera. Now, a black former BBC executive who's recently formed his own consultancy company, playfully describes the workforce behind the camera as the makers and the pickers. The makers, whether employees of the broadcaster or indies, pitch their ideas to the pickers who decide what gets made, which writers are in vogue, which actors get cast in the lead role, and which presenters front the show. When it comes to the makers, I've found BAME representation patchy at best in production, and as far as craft is concerned, you know, cameras, lights, sound, studio crews, costume, makeup, etc. I rarely, if ever, see a black or Asian face. But when it comes to the pickers, the channel controllers and heads of commissioning who oversee budgets and make the key decisions, here's what it looks like. How can this be in 2014? And what can we do about it? Let's look at TV. Here's a selection of popular dramas and comedies in recent years. This is what's going on in the UK. Southcliffe. Yeah, I enjoyed that. That guy shooting people in that West Country village. Of course, if we'd been in the ends, people would have shot back, right? <laughs> Broadchurch. Mixed race boyfriend of sister of deceased. Thank you very much for putting that in there. So there was somebody in there. The Fall was set in Northern Ireland, which is rarely seen on TV, Northern Ireland drama, so I guess that was cool. Miranda. I like Miranda. There she is. Mrs. Brown's Boys, the Irish. An ethnic minority uh, transvestite, I guess, so that's... Uh, <laughs> The evolution of BAME involvement in British TV seems to lurch one step forward and two steps back. A bit like John Sargent on Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> Except he had a job at the end of it. 
Meanwhile, on the other side of the Atlantic, this is what's going down. Scandal. Hold it down. Grey's Anatomy. Boardwalk Empire. Breaking Bad. Parks and Recreation. True Blood. Suki. New Girl. <laughs> Suki. New Girl. Elementary, which is their version of Sherlock, I guess. Has the Korean actress Lucy Liu from Kill Bill and Charlie's Angels playing Dr. Watson. Ooh, very bold decision. There's as much chance of that happening here as seeing Charles Sarchi and Nigella Lawson on Mr. and Mrs., isn't there? <laughs> Can you imagine that here? That's never going to happen. So how come Americans manage this almost seamless integration in front of the cameras, whilst here in the UK we find it so difficult? I think it's because they really invest and nurture BAME talent behind the scenes. It's no coincidence that the head of casting at ABC Disney, who produces Grey's Anatomy, Scandal and Modern Family, is Kelly Lee, an Asian-American woman with a vested interest in promoting minority talent. Or that African-American writers like Shonda Rhimes are able to write such brilliant three-dimensional characters, whatever race, creed or colour or gender. Talking of America, it was 50 years ago that Martin Luther King Jr. made a speech about how America needed to keep to the promise that it made in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, a promise that America was breaking at the time. In that speech, Martin Luther King had a dream. He dreamt that one day America would fulfill its promise. He dreamt that sons of former slaves and slave owners would sit around a table together. He dreamt that his children would be judged not by the color of their skin, but by their character. The black boys and black girls would join hands with white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. You all know the speech. I don't need to go on. It was his way of holding America to account. Here in the UK, we have the BBC, and they too have promises in their charter. Not quite the Declaration of Independence, but promises all the same. The BBC charter promises to represent the UK, its nations, regions, and communities. They've made a pledge to the people of the UK, the license fee payers, that they will represent them. Well, BAMEs are an integral part of Great Britain's communities. We deserve to be represented too. And just like Martin Luther King Jr., I want to hold our leaders to account. But I don't just have a dream, ladies and gentlemen. I have a screen. <laughs> I have a screen where great programs are produced by the multicultural many as opposed to the monocultural elite. I have a screen. I have a screen where the actors of the future <laughs> are cast not by the color of their skin, but by their talent alone. I have a screen. <laughs> I have a screen where the stories in our cinemas and on our TVs will reflect the wealth and variety of experience of all our communities, not just some. I have a screen today, can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> now the thing is, <laughs> white people down here, hallelujah. <laughs> right on, Simon, right on. The thing is, we won't achieve this screen by launching yet another round of training and mentoring initiatives. We need a different solution. So I've looked around and tried to find things that have worked in the past. And the answer is right here in the UK. Back in 2003, the BBC realized it had a problem, a representational problem. The nations and regions were not getting a look in. According to the BBC's annual report, only 3.7% of core programming budget was being spent in Scotland, despite Scotland having around 9% of the UK population. If you looked at the network programmes the BBC produced, 91% of them were being made in and around London. 91%. So the BBC decided that if it was going to keep its promise in the Charter, things needed to change. Now, 
They didn't change things by going to local schools in Glasgow and setting up new entrance schemes for the youth them. They didn't give all their staff in Wales mentors, although that could make a good buddy movie, note to self. And finally, they didn't think they could solve the problem just by increasing monitoring. No, what they did was structural. First, they said they would spend 50% of their money outside of the M25. And for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, they went further, promising them that the proportion of programme spend in each nation would at least match that nation's percentage of the UK population. They set firm targets and even set quotas of a minimum amount of programmes they were going to commission from each nation and region. And the result, like Sally Burkow's alleged drinks bill, is spectacular. <laughs> Since 2003, there's been a massive increase of programmes made outside the M25. There has been a 400% increase in the number of network programmes produced in the English regions. By 2016, over half of network spend will be made out of London. In just two years' time, the amount of network spend in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland should accurately reflect the size of the population there. Now, that's an amazing turnaround in increasing regional diversity. It's completely revolutionised the broadcasting landscape. But I think there's another part of the Charter promise to be fulfilled. The promise was to represent the UK's nations, regions and communities. The BBC has kept its promise for the nations and regions, but what about communities? More precisely, the BAME communities. I think they can keep this promise by taking exactly the same approach they took to increasing the output of nations and regions. And that means ring-fencing money specifically for BAME productions. For the nations and regions, they set quotas, but I know people don't like the word quota. So let's say ring-fenced money, okay? Ring-fenced money. If licence fee payers' money isn't spent, it will be clear in the annual report for each channel. But you know what? I've got a feeling people would quickly discover good programmes to spend the money on. But that's also why it involves appointing a couple of pickers and deciders, specific commissioners, to hunt out internal and external BAME productions to commission. But what is a BAME production, I hear you ask yourself? I'm going to tell you. Currently, Ofcom has three criteria to decide if a production qualifies as coming from the nations or the regions, okay? First, the production company must have a substantive business and production based in the UK outside the M25. Second, at least 70% of the production budget must be spent in the UK outside the M25. And third, at least 50% of the production talent, i.e. not on-screen talent, by cost, must have their usual place of employment in the UK outside the M25. A production needs to meet two out of the three to qualify. I believe these criteria can be easily adapted to define a BAME production in the following ways. A. At least 50% of the production talent, i.e. not on-screen talent, by cost, must be black, Asian or minority ethnic. The production staff will be self-declaring about their ethnicity. Self-declaration is a common principle in both police, health and other government monitoring of BAME statistics. B. The production company must be 30% BAME controlled and or 30% of senior personnel involved in the production in question must be BAME. And C, at least 50% of on-screen talent by cost must be black, Asian or minority ethnic. Production should meet two of these three to qualify. Two out of these three to qualify. Now there are more details and copies of this proposal which you'll receive on your way out for you to analyse and hopefully build on. This proposal has been months in the making drafted by myself and a number of key BAME industry figures, talent drawn from both sides of the camera. We believe everyone stands to gain from this proposal, everyone, 
both culturally and commercially. And if they don't like it, we're happy to consider their alternatives. But let's not just focus on the BBC. This is a problem and solution that relates to the entire industry, all of us. All the major broadcasters have made a promise to BAME people. They've signed up to the Creative Diversity Pledge, all except for Channel 5, but let's not go there. <laughs> the Creative Diversity Network made a pledge in 2009 in which people signed up to recruit fairly and from as wide a base as possible and encouraging industry entrants and production staff from diverse backgrounds. Encourage diversity in output. Encourage diversity at senior decision-making levels. Like the BBC, the other broadcasters have not been that good at keeping their promises to the BAME communities. But like the BBC, they have kept their promises to represent the nations and regions. Last year, half of all Channel 4's programmes were produced out of London. Half. And Channel 4 spent two-fifths of all its money outside London. This isn't just shameless or Hollyoaks. This was achieved after Ofcom set specific targets for Channel 4 to meet its licence requirement. Targets that it has hugely exceeded now. So what's the point of all this, Len? Does this screen, your screen, really matter? I put it to you, ladies and gentlemen, that it does. For many people around the world, the perception of the United Kingdom is determined by our TV exports. Whenever I'm in America or New York or somewhere, and I tell them I'm on TV, they say, are you the new jazz singer in Downton Abbey? <laughs> I say, no, I'm one of the servants working so far below stairs, by the time I get to the house, the show's finished. <laughs> Team GB's global image should be a fair and honest reflection of our society, not a fictionalised version of who we are. It's a misrepresentation not to include BAME as major contributors in the television and film industry. There is a wealth of talent to be tapped. There are writers, producers, executive producers, directors, script editors, skilled technicians who just want to work. When it comes down to it, all we're asking is for the broadcasters to keep the promises they've already made to Britain's communities, either through their charters, license agreements, or when they made the CDM pledge. Right now it feels there are no consequences when promises are not kept. And that's why I'm delighted that the Culture Secretary, Ed Vasey, has taken such an interest in this area and has promised to make them accountable for delivering on these pledges. Good work, and not before time. For myself, well, I love collaborating, working with new writers and new writing. And I look forward to the challenge of making new high-end drama and comedy to rival the best that's out there. A bold claim, I know, but I did three Jaeger bombs and a packet of wine gums before I came on, <laughs> so you'll have to excuse me. I'm going to leave you now with this quote. It's from the 3rd of February, 2005. Nelson Mandela, how soon they forget, Nelson Mandela said these words about taking action on world poverty, but this could easily apply to all of us involved in making this great industry more diverse. He said, sometimes it falls upon a generation to be great. You can be that generation. Let your greatness blossom. So why don't we do that? Every chairman or controller or commissioner or exec in this room, every HOD, production manager and casting director, every agent, you have it with your, within your power to effect a radical change upon this appalling situation. Let your greatness blossom. And let's just see how great our generation can be. Thank you very much for listening. Good night. And that's it for this week. I'm off for a lie down and a hot glass of lemon and ginger. 
We'll be back in seven days' time with another podcast. And remember, you can hear the most recent episodes by subscribing to us in iTunes or on a generic podcasting app, whatever that is. And you can read the latest news at theguardian.com slash media or follow me on Twitter at johnplunkett149. Media Talk is produced by Mr. Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag and drop tools, and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today. No credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN.